Welcome to the Top Order podcast. It's Hall of Fame time again. Three Englishmen, an Aussie and a Sri Lankan, are at numbers 35 through 31 on Baldy's Labour of Love. Stay tuned to the Top Order podcast coming up very soon. Baldy, we really are into the business end of this Hall of Fame, counting down number 35 through number 31 this week. Who have we got on the chart at 35? Well, let's go to England first on this episode of the Hall of Fame. Welcome, chaps. Uh, we'll go to the guy who, according to Mark Nicholas, was the glue that held English batting together. Ken Barrington played 82 matches for the Three Lions, 131 test innings, 6,806 runs, which will surprise you, at an average of 58.67, 20 test centuries, 35 test half centuries, and an average above replacement player of plus 17.03, which is good enough for fourth all-time. Could bowl as well, had 29 test wickets to go with his 273 first-class wicket. The stat that kind of jumped off the page for me when I was doing my research. Batting average of 57 in test cricket, batting average of only 45 in first-class cricket. So over 831 first-class innings. He made uh, 31,000, I should say, 714 runs at an average of 45.63 with 76 first-class hundreds. Uh, A really interesting character, played in that kind of 50s and 60s era, uh, dominated uh, South Africa in South Africa, uh, also dominated India and Pakistan at home uh, in series in 61, 62, and then in 67, averaging well over 100 in those series. So those three series I talked about averaged either 99 or 100 across the three or five test series. So a prolific scorer of runs, uh, twice made hundreds in four consecutive tests, uh, which is pretty impressive. Uh, and that uh, average of, of plus 15, better in tests than first-class cricket. Uh, just um, jumping in here, really to say that I guess out of all the older generation English and Australian players that have come up in the hall so far, I've, I've heard of all of them. And, you know, if you were asking me, top 100 cricketers, I probably would have eventually kind of come up with them. Barrington, I, I never would. Is there a reason? I don't know, Binksy maybe even. Is there a reason why I don't, like, I, I just did not know anything about him. And, you know, when I, when you look at the stats, he's certainly a case. I mean, the, the numbers, there's, you know, you could probably make arguments about Hammond and Hutton and all these other ones that we talked about recently. But, mm. you know, yeah, why don't I know anything about Barrington? I think like, because he played in an era with some guys that probably had a little bit more um, brill cream in their hair, a little bit more panache in their cover drive, maybe, you know, a little bit more of that sort of, you know, dare I say it, playboy kind of, you know, attitude to the game. He, he as Mark Nicholas said, I think in his induction into the ICC Hall of Fame, he was, you know, that glue. Um, he was obdurate. He was a, a fighter. Um, and I guess those words aren't ones you'd necessarily sort of associate with that kind of flair and that greatness. But um, I, I think the key thing was that was the way he played because of the team that he was in and the players that were around him. By all accounts, he could go out and, and give it a bit of a lick as well, but um, didn't actually do that um, because he um, very much was that, um, you know, that character that was sort of win over my dead body kind of attitude. And um, I've heard players um, of the following era, the sort of Bothams, the Gucci's, the Gowers, the Gattims, saw him as really a, a guy that was, a you know, a mentor and a father figure. And, that you know, they remember watching him sort of go out to bat for England with the sort of um, 
metaphorical sort of cross of St. George trailing behind him as he went out because he was that kind of guy that you wanted in battle um, with you, but perhaps not the flashiest of players. Uh, maybe why he doesn't come up on your radar. Yeah, certainly not the most flashy of players, Ken Barrington. Very, very slow. I've got written here in my notes. Look, he wasn't attacking better early on in his career, and he remodelled his style. I think he might have maybe run foul of the selectors a time or two uh, and and remodelled him as himself as a, as a slow defence-first kind of bat, you know, over my dead body, will you take my wicket type of thing. Um, got a lot of bounces in his career, uh, according to the notes that, that, I, that I was reading, um, and had to sort of negate that... Um, Attack mode of attack uh, in the 60s, of course, no helmet, so he would, would have had to defend that with with good technique and stuff. But you know, twice made four hundred and twice made hundreds and four successive tests. Unfortunately, he ended his test career at age 38, uh, had a heart attack uh, during during a match, uh, had chest pains during a match, later diagnosed as a heart attack, and and ultimately, unfortunately, at the age of 50, while on tour with the England side in the West Indies, uh, died from a heart attack on tour at just at just age 50. So a player that was taken from our from our cricketing lives far too soon. But much of his obituary talked about his leadership as both a manager and as a coach, a great man-manager of that England side in that kind of 60s and 70s era. So, you know, from his end of his career and, until his passing, he only sort of had 12 years to give back to the game of cricket as a, as a non-player. So he's one that's definitely going to be missed. How dramatic is that? You know, ending your career with a heart attack. Yeah. Um, but look, I guess with uh, Barrington, was with a lot of these guys that we're talking about now, I didn't know much about him uh, either, Stu. And what I'm seeing, and I'm sure we're going to see this as we go through the next 34 people, is we're just finding people with a real thirst for runs or wickets, whatever it is. Mm. Uh, Barrington, high concentration of runs, a couple of thousand run seasons in Test cricket, which is very rare mm. at this time time of the game, and. My favourite stat, looking at the home and away stats, he only scored six of his 20 hundreds at home. So he scored 14 hundreds on the road, which is, which is great. He liked to play the Kiwis. He averaged 99 against us. Oh so, um, yeah, great batsman from what I could see. I did see a little bit of footage around him, a uh, little bit of the eye test. Did anyone else have a look at that? I saw a tiny, tiny little bit. I, saw, I, I did hear that, uh, you know, you guys talked about how I guess how uh, gritty he was and, and nuggety and um, but that he loved to bring up his hundred with a six and I did see uh, I did see him charge down the wicket and donk one over the top for six which looked quite attractive. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, stories told about Ken Barrington by other by other pundits sort of reflecting on his career that he wouldn't be doing much and then all of a sudden he'd be on ninety nine and he'd bounce down the wicket to you and smack you over the top of your head straight down the ground for six. A great <laughs> way to bring up your hundred. I think that's a fantastic way to do it. Beautiful. No one's, hear the, no one's been timing. No, I've got the timer on here re- remotely in uh, yeah in Ottawa. So yeah, we do reach the kind of six-minute mark, or just over, actually, for Kenny Barrington. We're going to move to another Englishman. Um, Bordy, who have we got coming in at number 34? Right, let's go back in time a little bit. We'll stay in England. We'll go back in time a little bit. Another opening bat and ability to concentrate and play cricket in difficult conditions. We're going to talk about Herb Sutcliffe, who played 54 tests for England in that pre-war era. 84 innings, 4,555 runs, and an average of 60.73 in test matches, if you don't mind. That's good enough for fourth all-time. Uh, he has 1,600s in just 54 tests. That's one every three tests or so, uh, and 2350s as well. And that rate of scoring 150s is uh, fourth and second all-time, respectively. 
His average above replacement player is plus 15.92, sixth all-time. So on a per-test basis, this guy is one of the great, great players in test cricket. Uh, multiple series averaging over 80 against the Australians, both in Australia and in England. Uh, in this particular series, I'm looking at here, 1924-5, Australia in Australia, nine innings, 734 runs, 400s, 250s uh, against Australia in Australia in 1924-5. An incredible cricketer. Over a f- there's a five-year span of his career where he scored 16,000 first-class runs in the space of five years. I think mean, that's just that's just incredible, incredible stats. Uh, here's another one for you. 145 century opening stands at I think that must be first-class level. Surely, yeah, at first-class re- level. Uh, as part of his 50,670 runs uh, at first-class level, which is which is pretty impressive. High score of 313, 151. First class hundreds, pretty prolific bloke. You talk about thirst for runs, Raj. This guy's got it in spades. I'm not sure I can contribute too much for this because my notes here say awesome to see Suckliff so high on the list, Baldy. We we just call him Bert here in New Zealand, but uh, and you know I know his you know I, I knew his stats didn't quite stack up to this, but I thought you'd uh, you know bumped up a Kiwi and and just because of his standing in the game. So look, I'm just not sure that I can contribute that much to this conversation. So over to you guys. To assuage your thirst for New Zealanders in the Hall of Fame, if, if it was a purely first-class Hall of Fame, there's no doubt Bert Sutcliffe would be in there. He was a prolific first-class player, but unfortunately didn't get to play very many tests for, for New Zealand, which is which is a real shame. Back to the herb variety, though. Uh, didn't join county cricket until he was 24. So World War One, of course, intervening. Um, didn't join the county scene until he was age 24, um, but just kept coming back. When I was watching or, or reading about him, I should say, I just kept coming back to the degree of difficulty of playing and opening the batting in that era and getting caught on sticky wickets and that average of 60.73 as an opening batter. Just an incredible, incredible performance and a great opening partnership, of course, with Sir Jack Hobbs. He's the other half of the, the in this case, Hobbs and Sutcliffe opening partnership, not the Hobbs and Shaw Fast and the Furious <laughs> partnership. <laughs> The confusion but, today, Paulie. I've got a, look. I guess a couple of things. Um, I did get a little look at the the eye test. Um, one particular hook shot um, in an Ashes series, right off his nose, was the one that really stood out for me. Um, got really got into line, watched the ball almost until it cannoned into his face, and then um, smashed it away to the boundary. You, you talk about those sticky wickets um, and his opening partnership. A couple of things here for, for me is. You said he's sort of fourth all time in terms of um, that batting average, uh, four runs higher as an average than his batting partner, uh, Jack Hobbs, who we talked about. There was a quote that this is the greatest opening partnership the game has known, uh, the Hobbs and and Sutcliffe partnership. But he's quite low on the list. I, I know we've got a lot of, you know, real gun players, but what's the stat that's kind of taken a guy that's, you know, fourth all time from an average perspective, I think you said, um, but, you know, down in the down in the 30s. And then the second part of that for me is how much did or could you attribute to the wickets that these guys played on? Because, again, getting a little bit of a look at the eye test, there was quite a few wickets that he played on where um, the ball was just doing, you know, ridiculous things off those, those kind of sticky dog kind of wickets. Yeah, great question. So we're going to get onto this when we get to number 32 in the list because number 32 in the list is a modern player who scored far, far more runs at a slightly lower average. And I'm sure listeners of the podcast who are older than me will will ring in and tell me or will tell me in person when they get here on Thursday. Hey, Dad, how are you going? <laughs> Good to have you here soon. 
uh, will tell me how wrong I am and how these players should be above the, the likes of the modern greats that, that we have watched ourselves as, as kids growing up or, or now in the modern age. The answer that I have to that is that the more you play, the more chances, the more opportunities you have to make a low score. And in cricket, there are far more low scores in your life than there are high scores, particularly if you're as good as I am. And I get far, <laughs> far more low scores than I do high scores in, in the game of cricket. So my, my answer to that is the more you play, the more opportunity there is for you to have a run of low scores, et cetera, et cetera. So the more emphasis I've placed on averaging around about that 50 with 100, 100 plus tests, as opposed to averaging 60 in a smaller sample size, is very, very difficult to compare. I think future versions of the Baldy algorithm might change that that weighting, that dynamic a little bit. But at the moment, I have to give as much credit to longevity and number of runs and number of hundreds as I do to this kind of performance, which is just an incredible career. If you look at it, hundreds per hundred test is fourth, fifties per hundred test is second, average above replacement player is top six. So an incredible, incredible career for Herb Sutcliffe. Ask me for a cool stat, Baldy. Raj, I know you've always got one. Give me a cool stat. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> you spot the odd one out here, okay? For the batting or for the stat for highest batting average with 20 or more innings completed, Sutcliffe is fifth on the list uh -huh. okay. behind Bradman, Headley, Pollock and Voges. Mm. So uh, you guys would have guessed Graham Pollock's the odd one out there because he's left-handed. Um, but <laughs> and, look, also, and also had red hair. Yes. My, my, my question is with Hobbs is there's two things that keep coming up. And we've talked about them both here a lot. And the first one is you know, he placed an extremely high value on his wickets, the sticky wickets, all, the, all of that, that goodness there. But we also talk about Sutcliffe and Hobbs. I feel like when we talked about Hobbs, we didn't talk about Sutcliffe. So why is it that we're talking more about the partnerships here than his own individual greatness? Oh, I, d I don't think we should undercut um, Herb Sutcliffe's greatness. I mean, all you got to do is have a look at that average, 60.73. I just wanted to put him in context because we had talked about uh, Sir Jack Hobbs before in and making sure we make that kind of connection. But you're absolutely right. I've got here 145 century opening stands. Average opening stand in tests between Hobbs and Sutcliffe was 87. I think we covered that earlier. So they're just some incredibly prolific pairs of batsmen. And I think that kind of enhances both their legacies a little bit when you put them together. Uh, imagine if Cook had someone of this calibre batting with him. Imagine how high he'd be in the list. Well, guys, th that does wrap up Herb Sutcliffe's time. We are going to take a bit of a journey to get to our next player, pretty much as far as we can go around the world. Flying Qantas. Who do we uh, move to next? Baldy, number 33 on the list. Yeah, 33 on the list. We're going in a time machine and on a ship and a plane uh, to get to Australia and to Dennis Lilly, one of Australia's best fast bowlers of all time. He played 70 test matches officially for Australia and took, again, officially 355 test wickets, not counting World Series cricket super tests, at an average of 23.92 and a strike rate of 52. Best bowling 7 for 23 early on in his career, actually. I think that's 7 for 23. And a best bowling in the match of 11 for 123. 7 tenfers, 23 fivefers. And the, the rates of tenfers and fivefers are kind of top 15 all time. And his average above replacement player is top 20. His average, his wickets, his strike rate, all in that kind of top 20 to 25 uh, era. I think the thing that I want to just open with and lead with is that those stats don't take into consideration World Series cricket, where he was bowling at the best batters 
in the world, both West Indies and that kind of World Eleven, if you like. So if you factor in World Series cricket, he has 422 wickets at an average, I think, of about 24-ish, get there thereabouts, uh, including an 8 for 29 against a World Eleven uh, at an age of 22 as well. Um, and, he, and he took 11 for in that centenary test, actually, at a strike rate of 38 uh, to seal that game for Australia in the centenary test. So for me, one of the greatest ever fast bowlers for Australia, I think for... Our dads, or my dad, certainly he was a, an icon growing up, and certainly in terms of the formulation of World Series cricket, one of the absolute um, sort of genesis players for persisting with players should be paid better, they should be earning enough money to make a living out of the game of cricket, and he was a real um, a real turning point in terms of the formulation of that World Series cricket concept back in the 1970s. Uh, look, I could uh, six minutes doesn't feel like enough for Lily. I, I've got so many notes down here. You know, I I like you say, I what we're not old enough to have really seen his career play out. But I feel like I've seen loads of it just watching highlights. And you know, there's the mo, there's the headband, there's uh, there's just so, there's the aluminium bat. There's the, you know, there's the appeal, there's the chest out, there's Lillian Marsh, there's Lillian Thompson. You guys decide where we want to go because we could we could honestly talk about this guy for, for ages and ages. The aluminium bat, is that like a thing? Do you reckon that would be a thing today? Like, could that work as a cricket bat? I'm not sure. It was apparent. I think it was hollow. I'm not, I, look, I watched him using the bat and it didn't look like it was a particularly... A revolutionary piece of technology in terms of a leap forward. It was certainly, um, it was certainly a, a novelty at the time. Um, I think it was actually the captain. I think one of the chapels brought him out a replacement because he sort of hit the ball down the ground and it didn't go for four. And I think <laughs> the chapel maybe it was a bats a bit rubbish. So he's brought one out. <laughs> Lily refused to take it. The bowlers were unhappy. The umpires were unhappy. Everyone's unhappy. Dennis Lilly, fiery character when he got ahead of steam up, uh, famously uh, had a run-in with Jarvid Meandad, um, had a couple of run-ins actually as a batter as well, <laughs> refused to face up to somebody. I can't remember who it was in my notes. Um, but, yeah, just I just love that that swagger that he had, that kind of, you know, fast bowler look, open chest, hair, mullet, everything and the action the action if you want to talk about eye test for fast bowlers that yeah, action beautiful. is almost perfect and it kind of had to be right because he broke his back in the early 70s suffered a massive stress fracture took him almost two years to get back to test cricket and we might not have seen Dennis Lilly at all had he not sort of engaged in that intensive physiotherapy and recovery program uh, well ahead of his time in terms of in terms of pushing himself to the limit in terms of his recovery Binksy You've been rather quiet. You've been rather quiet, mate. Um, Lily famously going up against a lot of your a lot of your English uh, cohort in that seventies. Uh, Snow players like that. How do you remember him, or how does how does your dad maybe remember him as a as a player from that era? Yeah, look, I, I think it's more the sort of apocryphal tales of, of Lily that I remember more than more than anything else. Um, I, I guess I'd, I want to throw it back to you in terms of, we talked to, about Ian Botham, who was look, a relatively similar era, maybe a touch later um, in terms of his test career. And, um, you know, I was only two or three years old as, as he made that, um, you know, 1981 Ashes sort of appearances that, are, you know, down in cricketing folklore. How do you remember him in terms of his impact on the game and, and as a cricketer? And how did you... Um, how, how did you get assimilated with that in your, you know, in your early life? Was it through tales of your dad? Was it through highlights? What, what do you remember about that as growing up as a kid? 
I think mostly through my dad um, talking about players of his era. So he talked about Lily, he talked about Chapel, he talked about Rod Marsh, uh, the three that I, that I remember. And I think that combination of, you know, Court Marsh, Bold Lily, there's never been more dismissals in the history of Test cricket than the 95 Court Marsh, Bold Lily than there has been in that combination. So that's kind of the legend that has that has built itself up over the years. And then you kind of learn about things like World Series cricket and his involvement with that. But for me, the... The Lily thing that I remember the most growing up is the Dennis Lily Pace Academy. And that was famously the the kind of nursery for great fast bowlers that found players like Mitchell Johnson. Mitchell Johnson famously came out of that uh, Dennis Lily Pace Academy in Brisbane. Uh, Lily, I think, called someone up and said, right, I've got one for you. I've found one. And that happened to be Mitchell Johnson as a young, fresh-faced 17-year-old bowling in tennis shoes. So he was also a great fast bowling coach and a great scout for Australia, um, not just in Australia, but went over to India as well and helped set them set up their MRF Pace Academy over there as well. So not only a, a great coach for Australia and a great scout for Australia, uh, but also around the world. Also, just going back to World Series cricket, um, Dennis Lilly was, you know, one of the faces of that competition. His charisma was what helped attract people to the comp, and that comp has done a lot for the professionalism of cricket. Um, you know, where we are now. What, what are your What are your feelings on his involvement in World Series cricket and how that affected his career? Oh, it was pretty instrumental, right? Because he was, I think. Um mates with a, a producer, I think, uh, like a television media producer, um, who eventually had the ear of Packer. And I can't remember the exact lineage of the story, but the How's That documentary um, tells it pretty well, even though it's kind of been dramatised and, and so forth. But Dennis Lilly was instrumental in reaching out to, to get people to understand that there was an avenue for exhibition-style cricket or cricket that could earn the players' money. And famously, he railed at the fact that the groundsmen were earning almost as much getting the ground ready as the players were sort of playing cricket, which, you know, is great for the groundsmen, but not so great for for the players. So he was pretty instrumental in the formulation of World Series cricket, along with, I think his name is Cornell, maybe? Or maybe I've got John, that wrong. John Cornell was, there, the, yeah, there was the producer, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So, um, yeah, really instrumental in the formulation of World Series cricket. And as you say, one of the faces of, of the tournament for, for Kerry Packer. And look, before time runs out, I, I, I would just want to jump in. Obviously, any Kiwi link I, I jump on. But, you know, Dennis Lee was actually... Probably a really important person in uh, New Zealand cricket lineage as well with just the fact that he was a mentor to Hadley and, and uh, an idol for Hadley. Um, I, when I was watching the footage, Lily felt very Hadley-like, but then I actually had to think about it and thought about everything that you know, I've read from Richard Hadley, and actually it's the other way around, that Hadley turned himself into Lily when he was bowling. He famously talks about how he, uh, you know, whenever he would get into a tough situation, he would think, what would Dennis Lilly do right now? And, you know, when he was running up, he had various things that he said to himself as he was at the top of his mark, and, and Lilly's name was one of them. So, yeah, very influential, uh, you know, even if he maybe didn't mean to uh, create uh, the wonderful bowler that was Richard Hadley, uh, yeah, very meaningful person for New Zealand cricket as well. Baldy, we move on to a nation that's not fe uh, not featured much on the Hall of Fame list so far off to sri lanka who comes in at number 32 on this list of great cricketers well number 32 on the list we've got mahela jay wardner from sri lanka he played 149 tests for sri lanka 252 test innings and as a result of that career amassed 11,814 runs ninth all time 
in players who qualified for the Hall of Fame at a batting average of 49.84 across that career. A higher score, and I'm sure we'll get to it in a little bit, 374, one of his 34 test centuries and 50 half centuries. Average above replacement player of plus eight. A couple of test wickets in there, six test wickets, um, as well as 17,800 first-class runs as well. And that, um, that 374, I just want to get that off the bat, I think that's one of only six scores above 350 in the history of Test cricket. So it's a pretty elite list of players who've gone that far in terms of their batting. And, of course, he was only one shy of of Brian Lara and his 375, uh, even though Hayden went past, I think, and got 380. But he was he was right up there. And I think he played against South Africa in that game. It was Dale Stain, Makai Antini, Hall of, Hall of Famers, Andre Nell, Andrew Hall, and Andre uh, and... Dale Stain was talking in an interview and he basically said all we were trying to do was stop him from getting the world record. We didn't know how we were going to get him out, but we were just like, oh my God, this guy is just flaying us everywhere. How are we going to possibly dry up the runs like, and make him bat slow enough that he just wouldn't get to the world record? Because that's all they could do at that point. Did, did you go back and have a look at that scorecard? I did. Because oh, Sangakara's got 280 at the other end. Yeah. And um, they, they batted second, so that was the second innings. In the first innings, they figured got bowled out for 169. Oh, yeah. And then they've come and piled on 700 yeah. and then bowled them out for almost 500, but yeah, still won by an innings. 4, 434 in the Incredible. second innings, I think, for South Africa. No one else got 100 in that game. I think one of the South Africans got 90 in the second innings, but these guys came in at 14 for two, and I think, you know, Ntini and Stain thought, well, we've got our tails up here. We've nicked off a couple at the top of the order, and all of a sudden it's Sangakara and Jaya Warden. Sangakara was dropped twice before he got to 10, um, and I think they missed a run out or something like that. Um, but, yeah, they went and piled on 674, I think, something ridiculous, uh, and, and they yeah, got, their, got their way up from 14 for two to 700 for two. <laughs> We've just big upped Jay Warden. And look, I um, Sri Lanka was one of sort of a team that I loved to follow. You know, I think, you know, since the when they won the World Cup, I, I think they became kind of everyone's favourite, you know, second favourite team for a little while there. And, you know, they were a great side to watch. But, I, I, you know, you can talk about his awesome longevity. You, do, you did it a little bit before. But I think there are some numbers there that it, that are pretty worrying for someone that's this high on the list. And and they're all of the away stats. I'm sure that you've got them all in the, there in your list, Baldy. But, yep. you know, well, we've got uh, 56, average of 56 and 109 tests in Asia, but he averaged 35 in England, 28 in South Africa, 31 in Australia, 27 in New Zealand. He's a brilliant player, but those numbers are, are a real problem, I think, for someone this high. I'll just jump on the back of that because there is a big imbalance. I found that when I was looking as well. Uh, he scored almost, he averaged almost 60 at home, as you said, for 7,000 of his 11,000 runs. Mm. So the other 4,000 were scored under 40 away from home. Mm. So that is a big imbalance that we need, probably need to look at going forward. But the other thing I looked at is I like to, when we, we look at these people who have had a long career, longevity, did they go on a little bit too long? You know, that that's my other question before you come back to answering Stu's question just mm. about the mm. stats. So he, he actually, it wasn't the case for him. In this final year, he still scored 1,000 runs at 59 mm. with 300 and 550. So he could have kept going. He probably could have got another couple of years out of him. But And, and he did go on and play a little bit of Super mm. Smash. I think he came down and played for Central Districts yeah, here yeah. in New Zealand. Incredibly well-liked character on the New Zealand oh, yeah. cricket scene. Absolutely respected character. And he was just such a wonderful leader. And that's why I have him so high is that he was such a well-respected cricketer 
in the community. He's continued to be a leader on and off the field, um, both from a coaching perspective now in the IPL as well. So yeah, that's why I've got him so high. I looked at his ability to get big scores at home in favourable conditions as a very big plus. And absolutely right. There's a there's a whole bunch of conditions in which Mahela Jayawardena wasn't a particularly prolific cricketer. But if you have a look at Kane Williamson, Kane Williamson's plus minus home and away is 14. Mm. And that's a pretty significant you know differential. And it's because Kane is so brilliant at home. So I decided not to mark Mahela Jayawardena down too much for that home and away differential, basically looking at a guy like Kane Williamson, who's so incredible at home, and just going, okay, well, he's come back to the field away. But, yeah, it does mark him down a little bit in terms of the overall stats against someone like, I don't know, maybe an Alan Border who averaged more at home, uh, sorry, more away than he did at home in, in, in tougher conditions. Um, I guess just as we round this up, we were talking about this earlier today, Baldy, the uh, Jay Warden has done the triple, one of only, I think there's another person in the Hall of Fame, David Warner, who's done this. Yeah, one of your faves, yeah. One of my favourites. Uh, 100, <laughs> 100 in all three formats, tests, ODIs and T20Is. Yeah, we were looking at this list. It's a very short list. I think there's only 17 or 18 ma- male cricketers and Heather Knight, the sole female cricketer, who scored international centuries in all three formats. Uh, McCullum on that list for Ross, New Zealand? Uh, no, I don't. I don't, think he's, I don't think he's T20, T20 yeah. uh, but Guptill does. So Guptill and Ross Taylor, I think, are the two New Zealands on the list. And there's no country that has more than three players. Glenn Maxwell was the guy on there that surprised me. He's got mm-hmm. a Test 100 in India, One Day 100, and also a T20 100 as well. So an unlikely entrant into that particularly elite club of Test cricketers. But Mahela Jayawardena for uh, Sri Lanka on that list as well. Well, guys, that does just about wrap up Mahela Jayawardena. I'll add a couple of stats for you. Um, Away average, Baldy, just above 40, I think, if my maths is correct, which all of us would give our right arms for. So um, it pretty pretty decent to be uh, uh, averaging even 40 in test cricket home or away. And also, I think I'm right in saying he's got the most catches in combination with another uh, with, with a bowler in test cricket. 77 times he combined with Murali, which I think is the most common bowler fielder combination in the history of, of test cricket as well. Raj, I hope you like that stat as well. I love it. I love your work. Let's move on, though, to the final entrant into the Hall of Fame on this particular episode. Um, We're going to go back to the UK. Who's coming in at number 31, Michael? Right, we're going to go to the UK, and we're going to start with a quote, and a quote from the famous Richie Benno that said he he didn't hate batsmen, but he just intensely disliked them. (laughs) And so we're going to talk about fiery Fred Truman, who played 67 tests for England and in in 127 innings at the crease, took 307 wickets, the first player to take 300 test wickets at an average of 21.57. That's ninth all time. And a strike rate of 49.4, which is 12th all time. He had three tenfers and 17 fivefers. Both of those are top 25 all time and a plus uh, average above replacement player of plus 7.58. So that's top 15 all time. This is an interesting one for me. I want to talk about, and I'm just going to open this up, with a career that could have been, because Fred Truman missed 51 tests over the course of his career. So he could have played well over 100 tests. And if you have a look at, you know, even being conservative, let's say he played 40 of those and he wasn't injured and took another four and a half wickets per test, and that's being reasonably conservative. He took 4.58 wickets per test over the course of his career. He could have taken another 180 test wickets. We could be talking about a guy in the 70s and 80s, oh, sorry, in the, the 50s and 60s, sorry, who took 480 test wickets had he have played 
all of those 51 tests that he missed. He's just an incredibly prolific bowler. Um, we'll t- maybe get into the whys and wherefores of, of why he missed those 51 tests in a little bit. But, you know, first past 300, 29 wickets in his debut series while on national service at the time. Just an incredible, incredible bowler alongside uh, Alec Bedser and, and an outspoken commentator as well. Before we get into some of the yarns, Raj, you talked about eye test before. Did you get a look at Fred? Because that was fun. I did. I did. Uh, my favourite part was the long, curving run-up. Mm. Why don't people do that anymore? You're the you're a bowler here on the podcast. Why, <laughs> why, did, why didn't you come in with a curve when you were bowling? Oh, this is, I didn't really have a run-up long enough to have a, a curve that was worthwhile, but... Uh, yeah, look, he looked like someone who could he could he could have bowled today, right? And, and I don't think he would have looked out of place. Oh, I completely agree. I, you want to talk about Lily as the eye test? I reckon there's a little bit of Dennis Lily in um, in Fred Truman's action, and actually he mentored um, Dennis Lily in Australia and got in a lot of trouble for it with the England establishment uh, for mentoring a member of the opposition. Um, and it wasn't the first time that he had had socialised with a member of an opposition while as a player, but. Yeah, very, very um, critical as a commentator, as a pundit, but also very willing to lend a hand and lend advice. And he worked with Dennis Lilly, and you can see a little bit of similarity between those two actions. A little bit of Thompson as well, I thought, the long stride. Yeah, and that back foot impact kind of behind gets ready to go for a real slingy action. He's got a lot of impact there at back foot impact as Fred Truman. I love his action. I reckon it's great to watch. It's it's fantastic to watch. It would have done so much off the wicket. Doesn't look like much fun to face. No, absolutely not. And he disliked batsmen. I think he would have made it a very, very hard time for anyone who played against him in those 67 tests. Yeah, look, the, the action I think is yeah is fascinating, and and it was in that era of the back foot drag as well, where um, we didn't have I think the front foot noble law through the the whole part of his career, so that that kind of back uh, back foot would drag its way through the the pop increase. And um, the, the thing I really like is that I guess a little bit like the hundred meter record, and um, he was really the first on that sort of evolution of the way that wickets tally's gone up. You know that you mentioned Bordy, I think the first to uh, 300 at a pretty decent strike rate, 17 fifers. And yeah, the point you make about those missed test matches, a, a combination of, look, a few brushes with authority, I think. But from a fitness perspective, he stayed fit pretty much through um, a, a first-class career, which is insane for a fast bowler. 603 games as a fast bowler, mm. 2,300 wickets or thereabouts. Um, so and just under know, just under a hundred thousand balls bowled. Geez. It's incredible. So yeah, look, it, it's one of those you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. We we don't know what would have happened if he'd have played in uh, some of those games, but I definitely see the evolution of that, particularly fast bowling, uh, fast bowling wickets records start with uh, with Fred Truman. Oh, absolutely. I mean that those first class games that he was playing, he was taking a hundred wickets in a first class season. Um, regularly and not getting picked for England. As you say, trouble with authority, I think, cost him at the selection table. Um, you know, he was often criticised the kind of the hypocrisy, the snobbishness or his perception of that in English cricket, and that got him offside. He got offside famously with Len Hutton on his first tour away, um, and they never played for England together again, despite both being from Yorkshire. So they're on that, that first five years of his career, he missed a lot of test cricket uh, that he could have played, and, and who knows what might have been. Uh, but yeah, that's, I guess, the only real disappointment thing about his career is that unfortunately uh, he missed a lot of test cricket my favorite moment of course Fred Truman 
Dennis Lilly passes 300 test wickets. I think you guys put it on. I can't remember oh, who it that's was. That's a fantastic video. I'll put it into the. Uh, I'll, I'll put it into the show notes. It's, uh, uh, it, you got to. You got to watch this oh, Fred, if, if listeners. Fred Truman at the pub congratulating Lilly on his 300th wicket with a pint in hand. That's a, a man after my own heart. Uh, obviously, drink responsibly, everybody. And, and, and still going after the authorities. And and still going after the authorities in that one. So, oh, look, it was it was fantastic. Um, very very abrasive as a commentator. Um, not afraid to be critical. I think famously, I think he said, uh, we don't have. We didn't have metaphors in my day. We didn't beat around the bush. There's a deep irony in that, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, picking up on that, Binksy, did did you was he a voice that you kind of heard all the time growing up? Because I I there was a um, I don't it was on Radio Sport. I'm sure that they used to play. I don't know if it was rain breaks during the cricket or uh, whether it was kind of you know late at night and they would uh, just have nothing else to play and they would play the story of Fred Truman telling about Wes Hall pushing off the site screen and I was trying to find it online and like if if listeners are hearing and and uh, can and know the story it was a brilliant story and and uh, you know if they can share it with us that would be fantastic but yeah it's something that kept going over and over again but yeah Binksy was he a voice that you heard all the time yeah look absolutely so he was um, on test match special all through my childhood I think until uh, the late 19. 19- 90s you know almost a precursor i think to uh you know jeffrey boycott very very uh, forthright with his opinions you know had lots and lots of uh, lots of sayings and, and you know lots of those sort of um you know fa- famous uh, tales you know getting out some university player in a, a first class match and the the player said to him that was a very good ball mr truman he said i and it was wasted on thee um <laughs> Yeah, so you know, lots and lots of those um, those kind of quotes. And but Baldy, on a serious note, I think we talked a little bit about this with the three Ws and their sort of geographical proximity as well. Um, a rich vein for England cricketers, not just Yorkshire, but actually the borough that he was born in, the West Riding of Yorkshire. One of I think, um, look, someone will correct me on this, particularly in my family, probably three um, major sort of areas of Yorkshire. We've already had. Uh, Boycott, we've got Sutcliffe, we've got uh, Len Hutton, um, all coming from this very concentrated area of, uh, of Yorkshire. So be interesting to get a, a stat there across um, where it's best to be born geographically, <laughs> Bordy, to get into your uh, your top 100. Yeah. So yeah, may- maybe that for addition to. Absolutely. I, I draw parallels to uh, my uh, home region and they breed them tough in mining country. So they must breed them tough up in Yorkshire as well. Let's wrap up the podcast there. It's been a joy to have you guys alongside me for this episode of the Hall of Fame. 35 through 31, well into the third tier of the Hall of Fame. We've had Ken Barrington, Herb Sutcliffe, not Bert Sutcliffe, but Herb Sutcliffe. Uh, Dennis Lilly, Mahala Jaiwardner, and Fred Truman in 35 through 31 in that order. Thank you so much for listening to the Top Order podcast and putting up with us for the last 39 minutes. I hope you've enjoyed it. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you soon on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. <laughs>